Our students carry this passion at a level that we forget as we become adults and tied to the, the physicalities of the world. They still hold on to it, and that kind of passion uh, reminds me why I, I want to do this job of representing art and design as a president of RISD. That was John Maeda, president of the Rhode Island School of Design. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Designer, artist, computer scientist, author, and educator. John Maeda has been a leader in integrating art, design, technology, and science. Born in 1966, Maeda studied software engineering at MIT and used his natural ability as an artist to design software and graphics that had an aesthetic appeal. After completing his master's degree at MIT, he studied art in Japan, where he received a PhD in design. As computers became more sophisticated and the web made their technology more accessible, Maeda was perfectly positioned to influence computer-generated design. His work is often at the crossroads of art and technology, where he's consistently pushed their boundaries to explore how these disciplines shape each other. He's known for his innovative thinking, a belief that technology should be humanized and that design in the digital age should be simple. Indeed, one of his books is titled The Laws of Simplicity. He's a pioneer in championing the creative economy and insistence that a thriving 21st century economy must find its leaders in artists and designers. He's won many national and international awards for his work and was chosen by Esquire magazine as one of the 75 most influential people of the 21st century. Since 2008, John Maeda has been the president of the Rhode Island School of Design, or RISD, where he's continued his emphasis on the collaboration of design and technology to the benefit of both. It's been a long journey for John Maeda, which began in Seattle in his father's tofu factory, where he learned by example the value of craft and of hard work. Well, you know, I grew up in a hole in the wall in the International District, which used to be called politically incorrectly Chinatown of Seattle. And that's where I grew up in this very cold in the winter, very hot in the summer environment where my father worked very hard and taught us to work hard with him through example. What kind of work did your father and you do? The work was kind of hard to describe, really. It's all manual labor, and it begins at 2 o'clock in the morning or 3 o'clock in the morning, and it goes on till 5 at night. And you move things from left to right, right with your hands. You scoop things, liquids, solids. You carry uh, heavy things. They're cold in the winter because you're working with water, which is very cold in the winter. And it's very hot in the summer because we fried a lot of things too, like frying, industrial style frying. And I always wondered when I was in school about how I learned about child labor, you know? And I was like, oh, are my parents gonna get arrested or something, whatever, you know? <laughs> but uh, that's kind of how I uh, grew up, uh, working very hard with my parents. How did you get to MIT from there? Well, you know, my parents were immigrants, and they thought this thing called college would save, our, save their kids from having to work so hard. So they knew that there were two colleges in the world, MIT and Harvard. And they had this dream that one of us would go to this place, wherever it might be. We were in Seattle, Washington, 
And they thought MIT might be in Washington as well, even though M stands for Massachusetts or whatever. So we had no idea, but it, they had this dream that someday one of the kids could, could go to college. That was the dream. What I have found, and not meaning to overstate the case at all, but kids of immigrant parents who decide that they're going to be artists or writers or involved in the creative arts at all are met often with very blank stares. I know a doctor who decided she was going to be a novelist and her parents, I think they're still passed out from the shock of that. Mm -hmm. Did you find that as well? Well, you know, I think it was in grade school. My parents were there for the parent-teacher conference thing, and my teacher, Mrs. Harita, she told, she told my parents that John's good at art and math. And my father said to his friend the next day, John's good at math. So I learned, like, wait, Dad, what about the art part? And he says, John, you know, this art stuff's not good for anything. So the math stuff is good. So uh, I was good at math, too, and computers were just kind of like emerging. And we were always so busy working that my father felt a little bit sorry for me, I think. So he bought me a computer, which at the time was an anomaly. We didn't have very many computers around then. And I would learn how to use it at night. And what did that entail? Because computers then, very different from computers now. Well, the computer back then... We're talking you, in the 80s? In the 80s. 80s, yeah. You'd buy a computer, you'd bring it home, you'd plug it in, and it would glow. That was all it could do, really. You know, There was no software. So you had to type in the programs and run them. Computer programming was like, it was a real craft back then. And um, my world in the tofu factory was about making things with your hands. So I began to like make things with uh, my mind, with the same kind of clicking manual labor, but creating these machines inside the computer that you really can't see, computer programs. When did you decide that art really was worth something too? Actually, at, at, at MIT. I discovered that I could draw and program, which was an anomaly. And this was 85, 84, it went to MIT, 85, Macintosh's taking off, graphical computers emerging. Remember, it was all like text, graphics on the screen. And everyone needed people who could draw pictures on the computer screen, icons. So I became very popular on campus. Like, wow, there's this guy. He can like program, but he can also draw and make icons of things. And so I became the guy that could draw icons. And you know, when you're the only person who can do this kind of stuff, your head gets kind of big. I'm like, wow, I'm really, I'm really, must be really good at this stuff, you know. And then um, I found a book in the library by a man named Paul Rand, a graphic designer. And I opened up the book and I looked at all the pictures and the text and I thought, wow, I really, I really suck at this. People are really good at this, you know. So how do I get better? That's how it began. And you ended up after MIT going to art school in Japan. Yes, out of a lot of accidents, because um, the happenstance is more like. I got to MIT, and in my first uh, year there, the upperclassmen were studying for this test called the GRE. And I was like, what's this test for? We just did the SAT thing, you know? Well, this is to go to graduate school. And I called my dad and said, there's something called graduate school. And so dad said, go to graduate school, you know? But there was a professor named Muriel Cooper, who was the art director at MIT Press for a long time. And she saw my skills or work, and she said, maybe you should be in art school instead. And I thought, what is that? You know, never knew it actually existed. <laughs> you know, so I wanted to switch into something like this Rand stuff I saw. My father told me that I'd have to finish doing what I'm doing. Uh, his whole rationale was, 
you'll have to feed your family someday, John. So, you know, that was this whole thing. And I finished my master's degree in semiconductor physics, actually. And he said, well, you need a job now. You can support a family if you ever needed to. Go and do what you want to do now. So I went to art school and changed my life. Did you know immediately, John, that art and science had a lot to say to each other, or was that something that you discovered? No, not at all. I knew nothing about this, really. Um, at MIT, this Media Lab place was starting to like take off, and so I hung out there. So I um, went to art school, and in art school I discovered there was a, uh, the school I went to was very Bauhaus-ish. It was uh, Tsukuba, outside of Tokyo, and um, I just kept reading. Uh, they had a large English language library, so Bauhaus, Ulm, art history, going back, way back. Um, I was like, wow, there's always been this curiosity about art and how art advances the world. And once in a while, science like, collides with it and something happens, like the futurists, the idea that, that the automobile could change the entire perspective of art. I was like, huh, technology, science, and art have always led to some kind of quantum leap. Photography, the unholy art. Later, we love photographs. So technology always uh, puts a little kind of like a accident in the oyster. A little bit of sand gets in there and you wait a while and artists, people create the art that we all suddenly can't live without. During that time in art school, were you working at all with computers? And if not, did you miss them? I think everything in my life has been like a very happy accident. <laughs> Went to art school and uh, I was very happy because I was away from computers, very happy. What were you um, doing? I was um, setting type the old-fashioned way. I was uh, making sculptures out of aluminum. Aluminum is so hard. We think it's so soft, but it takes forever to mill aluminum by hand. And then I had this teacher in Scuba who pulled me aside and said, so what will you do with your life, John? And I said, well, you know, I want to study the classics and be like you, teacher. He looked at me like I was, like, crazy. He said, like, you know, you idiot in Japanese, you horses behind. That's pretty bad in Japanese. He said, you're, you're young, so do something young with yourself. When you get older, the classics will always be there. So don't worry about it so much. So it's very freeing. So I picked up the computer again, began to make stuff. The stuff was unique because at the time, people who could make art and computer program were a rarity. And I made stuff. People didn't know what it was. People would stare at it and say, that's not art. That's nothing. Can you stop doing that? It's a disgrace. It was really good. It was good, like, oh, you think that? Well, thank you. I kept on making stuff. It began to become more mainstream. My teachers at the time said to me that I should become a professor because I should figure out if my work is any good or not. Because at the time, I was one of, one of, one of very few people who could do this. I said, well, make more people that can do it and see if you really are any good at it. Make the people that will come and destroy you someday. So. And how much I did that. I came in touch with all these people who could do things like this on the computer much better than me. <laughs> and so I um, changed again. You also redesigned software to, in fact, make it more applicable to designing art. Yes, I mean, it, it's, it's been a long strand since the 60s, uh, computer art at Bell Laboratories. There's always been a movement to link computers with art, a long-standing linkage. Until the web, there was no way to deliver it. 
easily. Not to us. To it was everyone. Ha- it was happening in Hollywood. It was happening all over the yeah. place. Exactly. But it could never become mainstream. Mm-hmm. So I feel very lucky I was there when it hit mainstream. I'll never forget when I was interviewed for the Times one time, and I was asked, who's my idol? And I said, well, this uh, man, A. Michael Knoll, who was at Bell Labs ahead of his time, doing some amazing stuff like uh, virtual reality before computer screens existed, all this stuff. And so I mentioned that. And then a letter came in the mail from A. Michael Knoll. And he said, I'm so glad someone out there remembers me still. <laughs> but the second thing he said, see, he stopped making art in the late 60s. He went to work for Nixon, I think. Uh, went, went to do policy, policy making. He said he stopped making art because he realized that making art is important, but policymakers define the whole space of the world. So he put all his work into policymaking. And I was like, huh, what's that? Your latest book, Redesigning Leadership, really talks about what leaders can take Mm. from artists and designers. This seems like a perfect segue. I think that um, people are looking for new kinds of leaders, and they haven't been able to find them in business schools or technology schools. They're looking for folks that can take risks, can think around corners, that can work extremely hard and represent uh, the highest form of integrity. And if you lay those out, it sounds a lot like an artist, a designer. So I've been looking at this role as president of RISD as a kind of opportunity to just talk out loud about leadership and how being an artist and designer helps to shape my experience, which I want to share uh, with others who are grappling with what it means to be a leader in this very tumultuous times and how I draw upon my understanding of art and design to help me cope, help me succeed, and I like to share that. You know, there's often a stereotype, I think, of the artist, the, the lone individual struggling away. And you yes. know, certainly there is a lot of solitary sure. work that happens with art. But yes. as you point out, artists are also extraordinarily collaborative. Yes, yes. They do work well with others. Well, <laughs> I know very few artists that want to live in a closet by themselves. There are a few of them. They do amazing things. We find them later after they're gone, usually. <laughs> but artists in general love society. And they love to relate to society. And they love to have the opportunity to let us come in touch with what is meaningful, which if we live in this constructed capitalistic world, we, we think we see it a certain way. And artists help remind us of what's truly important. It's what they do. They can't help not doing it. It's in their DNA. It's why sometimes that individualistic artist seems sort of lone wolfish. Not because they want to be alone, it's because they want to participate with society at a grand scale, to have that opportunity to, to do so. Passion is the other thing artists really bring to the table. And, and in some ways you see that at Google, if you, if you yeah. look at that combination of yeah. where work and life, work is, similar. Not, is, is similar, and Google mm. creates an atmosphere where a lot of your life can be happening yeah. at Google in a way that's quite fulfilling, I think. First of all, at Google, you have the company cafeterias, which are like five-star restaurants. So you're fed well. So you'll never be a starving Google employee. And uh, for me, you can bring your dog to work. There you go. There you go. Very crucial. <laughs> it's a very uh, amazing place. And I have to ask, though, the question is, 
what kind of environments do artists really want? And in my book, I gave a recount of how I was struck by how uh, a young artist here on campus was saying how she needed to struggle to feel alive. So there's something about artists that want to run counter to any easy feeling. It's where they get their, their lift, their kick, their connection from. Hmm, that's interesting. I recently interviewed the poet Robert Hass, and he said he had been thinking about the difference between fantasy and imagination. Hmm. And for him, fantasy is like daydreaming. You fall into it, you hardly know when you begin to fantasize, and then it just kind of ends. But he thinks imagination involves struggle. Mm. And he likens it to Jacob wrestling with the angel. Funny you say that because, um, you know, I use Twitter a lot. Mm -hmm. And I have a bunch of things I can't actually put on Twitter. So I have this whole, like, you know, like the little, little, little word sculptures, little poems, you know. One thing I will eventually press a button on is that um, the one failure of an artist that they should avoid, because failure is supposed to be good for artists. The one failure to avoid is the failure to imagine. I think when artists stop imagining, they aren't the people that they want to be. But sometimes real life takes control. You know, you've got to feed your kid now. Stop imagining. <laughs> you've got to drive to over there. You've got to carry the Snickers bar from here to there. So, you know, but artists have the ability to imagine at will and that's an extraordinary skill. You see it all the time. They can take something and imagine about it. Another kind of skill. They can take something that you think is pedestrian, like waiting in line for lunch, and make it into something. Sometimes they fail, but they're not, they're not afraid to fail at trying to imagine that it could be something else. Scientists are like that too in some ways, aren't they? Scientists and artists are similar. I like how, um, you know, how they say if you're a sculpture major, you can't get a job. If you're a biology major, you can't, you can't get a job too. So, I mean, so certain sciences are, you know, are mathematics. So it's, it's sort of funny how like uh, we think it a certain way. Pure scientists are very similar to pure artists in that their integrity matters more than more than anything else, and the discovery is rare, but that doesn't scare them. Okay, why do you think there's been such a separation between art and science? A separation occurs because we like to box things. Like if you're going to carry your lunch, you need a bag. If you're going to go to a party and say what you are, you want to make up your mind. We need to know what that is in order to refer to it, whatever it is. And if you say, I'm uh, melon, banana, mandarin, orange, pineapple, kiwi, they're like, well, what is that? If you say, on the other hand, well, I'm an apple. It's much crisper, works better. We can really identify who you are, what you are, Artists, scientists, um, names of jobs, we like that box. The box is very comforting. But as you will notice, most artists don't want to call themselves artists because the artist is a box to be in. Scientists are slightly more comfortable with it. Artists, much less so. We've talked a bit about what scientists can learn from artists. What can artists learn from scientists? What artists can learn from scientists is something I'm really passionate about right now, about how can artists learn how to raise funds for their explorations, the way scientists have mastered. Must, yeah. I have something on the web, I have a little counter I made where you can compare the number of dollars given to defense 
to the arts and it's like you, it's like you can't even compare there's nothing you can use with your hands or whatever to compare the magnitude of difference i think the artists know they need funds to do their work and scientists know that too but there are much more evolved ways to evaluate science and to fund it for the arts uh, it's much less evolved so what can artists learn from how scientists are raising funds and how can they be a part of that fundraising that scientists do you know, well, right off the bat, I would think one of the differences is that scientific discovery has the ability to be replicated. And I think that's very important for funders. And I also think, and I might be wrong here, but I think that funding for science is often hinged on the project's applicability, on how the project or the outcome of the project can be put to use. Well, I think that the, the grants are just asking for exploration. And going back to the whole policy thing, mm -hmm. I mean, the thing that we've discovered in Washington is that um, many of these grant-making procedures have certain requirements. Maybe you need a PhD to get funding. For most artists, the terminal degree is an MFA. So there's a kind of um, thing stuck inside our policies for grant awarding that bias towards scientists. Mm -hmm. So that goes back to A. Michael Knoll's point that the policy holds a key to changing perceptions at a, not perceptions, but even like the possibility. So it isn't, it isn't the fact that when your daughter comes up to you and says, you know, you want to be an artist and your immediate reaction is, no, you're not going to be an artist, you know, that reaction isn't, an, isn't a reaction because artists are bad. It's because you're worried about their ability to uh, feed themselves in the future. Mm -hmm. But what if in the future, being an artist was as good as being a scientist, which isn't that bad, too? Uh, that could change perceptions. I think Europe had that angle and is losing it right now because Europe saw the cultural value of art in relationship to cultural value of science. And now as you know, budgets get tighter and we become more um, a truly capitalistic society, you can't measure art's impact, you toss art out uh, in Europe. America is learning how to realize that innovation doesn't come from the sky. It comes from innovative people that the art and design field has like um, in spades. So why don't, why don't we use them? You're a champion for this, for the role that artists and designers play in the 21st century creative economy. Mm -hmm. So I kind of want to approach this two ways. First, give me your definition of what the creative economy is. What does that mean to you? Oh, I like uh, Richard Florida's definition of the creative class, the creative economy around that. Anyone doing thinking work is arguably creative. And his definition, that includes lawyers and all kinds of people. So I, I find that still valid. In particular, though, in business creation, in creating new types of businesses, that's the creative economy on steroids. Let me give an example. So there's a company, Airbnb. It's a uh, what's called a couch surfing site. So if you have an extra room, you can rent out your room to anyone, like eBay for like your room. That now has a billion dollar valuation. Uh, Ashton Kutcher is now backing it as well. That's started by two of our graduates. You wouldn't expect that, but art and designers are now functioning as leaders in that economy that we know so clearly as the quote-unquote future. You see it at that scale. You see that even smaller scales. People making uh, successfully their letterpress work, 
and selling it on Etsy.com and making a living online. That's also part of the economy. Artists and designers make creatively and people want to buy creatively. Now look at Apple. Why is Apple so successful? Not because they have the best product. They have the best designed product. It fits with your culture. They're making culture. They're artists in business. Opening that iPhone, that box, it was beautiful. People love it. Yeah. Yeah. And people keep trying to make something the exact same size and the exact same like number of pixels. But it's more than that. It's the entire experience. And then experience is what artists and designers make because experience always has to be fresh. It keeps moving. And computers cannot create fresh experiences. We people, we're a very sensate. Artists feel the world. They craft sculpt experiences every day. They thrive to let you, the audience, feel something. You can't feel it if you feel the same thing every day. So it's always a little bit different. And in some ways, that goes to what you've said about what you've learned here as president of RISD. The buy-in doesn't happen via social media. It happens one-on-one. Yeah, I was at this thing this week about best practices in social media for fundraising. And so I was watching the expert talk about all the social media, this, that, whatever, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, conversion rates, et cetera. And um, for me, I couldn't help but feel like, I am so tired of social media. I'm like, I'm just like so like tweeted out, you know, I stopped my Facebook page like last year. And the reason why uh, isn't because I don't believe in it. I believe we're over-believing in it. You know, I was so excited to hear that you're going to be here in the room with me, not over the phone, so I could actually see you mm-hmm. and feel you and understand you. I thought, wow, this is going to be much more exciting because I wanted to give you a better interview because of it, because you're here because you bothered to come here, so thank you. That's it's a, my pleasure. It's a big deal. But it's also the truth. I'd rather be there because you do get a better interview. There's just no question about it. Yeah, and, and I think that that's lost on the social media world. The thing I found the most ironic as the person spoke, and I could hear other case studies about it, there was something about how, I forget, it might be Lady Gaga or who was it that raised a lot of money online, like an online campaign that succeeded versus most don't succeed, it turns out. And they're all kind of like wondering, like, why? Could it be the celebrity, could it be whatever? It struck me how it's because in the case where money was raised, it was linked to an event. You're all there in the concert space. And so you're all there with your phone ready. And so it's actually a synchronous event. You're all there together. That's why you're all moving in like lemmings together. It's like the famous story about the commercials for the Super Bowl. Like, why is a commercial there so popular? It's, well, number one, a live event. Number two, if it's live, they have to be there. They can T-vote, of course, but they're all there with their popcorn and barbecue ribs, whatever. And so the commercial gains more value because you're sitting there watching and knowing that millions of people are watching at the same time. That's a rush. We want to be together. Even if we're apart, we want to be together. So social media is very asynchronous. And I think it's best when you're all at the same time, which, which is not the whole point. The point is asynchronous. I find that interesting. So put on your predicting hat. Yeah. And what would you... It's a very small hat. <laughs> <laughs> How about just a couple of, of ways mm-hmm. that you think artists and designers can be given more value for their role in the creative economy? Oh. Well, two things. The first thing is that the world beyond art and design 
private equity people, uh, dot-comers, new dot-comers, uh, policymakers, should know what art and design really is. Artists are sophisticated people. They're creative thinkers. Designers make businesses. They change the, the, the economy. Getting in touch with that fact is step number one. The second challenge is inside art and design institutions, recognizing that there's a larger role to play. I think that uh, many people in institutions like even mine think of art and design a certain way. So inside institutions themselves, looking beyond the quoted version of art, the quoted version of design, what it means, to look more expansively to how the world is looking for these kinds of creative minds. So inside institutions of art and design, look outside. Outside art and design, look what's, look, look, look what's in there. Um, those two things have to happen. It hasn't happened yet. Well, John Maeda, thank you so much. I really appreciate you giving me your time. Thank you. That was designer, artist, computer scientist, author, and the president of the Rhode Island School of Design, John Maeda. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from My Luck by Broke for Free, from their EP, Directionless, licensed through Creative Commons. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at www.arts.gov. And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, a look at creative placemaking in Miami, Florida. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.